Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, April 8th, we're studying 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. The hope that belongs to Christians on the last day strengthens us to live as the people of God right now, because we know that we have been set free from our futile, sinful way of life. Christ has paid the price with his holy, precious blood. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Phil Boo. Pastor Boo serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Pastor Boo, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Uh, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context. We haven't gotten too far in the book of First Peter at this point. As you think about the book as a whole, the author, what are some helpful things that we need to know going into the text we've got today? Well, uh, what we have here, of course, is uh, Peter's first epistle. And Peter, everybody will remember as that former fisherman, used to be named Simon, an apostle with Jesus the whole time, uh, the boisterous spokesperson for the disciples. And now he's writing a letter to the congregations that are in the Roman province of Asia Minor. He lists all the places that it'll or it'll be going to you know you have Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia so Peter says that he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion so these congregations um, in Asia Minor were largely Gentile in their population but they would have also had plenty of Jews who would have been part of this dispersion Jews who had relocated to escape the various persecutions that they would have been facing. So while the audience is undoubtedly all the Christians in these churches, and specifically some of the Jews because of their unique circumstances, we also get, by the time we get to uh, chapter 5, that Peter's addressing some specific lessons to the pastors, the fellow elders of these congregations. The whole force of the letter is to encourage these pastors and congregations who were facing these struggles in their faith, um, to encourage them in their walk, to remind them that they are set apart to be holy, that they're children of God. And so in the passages that precede our text, the first 12 verses, Peter begins by pointing to their election and their shared salvation through the work of Jesus. And he assures them that whatever suffering that they may be facing in their present lives, the resurrection of Jesus should give them assurance and hope in that future inheritance that is theirs. Yeah, the, the section that we have for today starts with the word therefore. So we want to make sure that we keep that context in mind. And I think you summed it up very well that this election, this this action of God that he has done according to his grace, it gives them confidence. It encourages them in these persecutions and their struggles for the faith in their life right now. And it is amazing to me throughout this epistle, and this is only the second section, but just reading through it in preparation for this study, how, how often Peter will make use of various things that Jesus did as a way to strengthen the Christians in their Christian faith. In the text we looked at yesterday, it was especially the resurrection of Jesus. And, and that's going to come up again today. But also, Peter's going to draw on the suffering of Jesus, the, the holy, precious blood that he shed, as well as the second coming of Jesus. All of this is going to be drawn on by Peter in order to strengthen us as Christians for our lives in this life right now. So let's read the text. We are in 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile 
knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. That's our text for today. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. Pastor Boo, the opening words of verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action. In the ESV, there's a little footnote after the word action. It says Greek is girding up the loins of your mind. That's a pretty vivid image that Peter is is putting into our minds here. What is he saying with that, that image? Right. Absolutely. You know, what we have translated is preparing your minds for action is like gird up your minds. It's that play on the phrase, gird up your loins. It's You have to imagine the long clothing that men would have worn and then visualize that if you had to do anything that was physically um, a challenging, you would wrap up that long garment sort of around your legs and tie it up around your waist so that you could then move around without restriction. It's what a man would have done before running or competing in an event or or even hard work or battle. And so he says, gird up your minds as in the sense to, we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to be, uh, and, and what, what the translation that is used is good. Preparing your minds for action makes sense. But I think perhaps Peter is thinking of Jesus's own words in Luke 12, 35, where Jesus is talking to Peter and the other disciples And he pretty much tells them the same thing about being ready. Keep your loins girded. Keep your lamps burning, Jesus said. And it brings to mind um, also that command in Exodus that the Passover should be celebrated in this state of readiness. So in this section, Peter is going to be giving this hard saying, be holy because God is holy. He's going to be urging obedience to God as a response to the great gifts that God has given us, the faith that God has given us, but it's still a point of law. And as law, it's something that our natural selves want to resist. He's driving home the point that Christians have been called to distinctive holy lives as the children of God. So what he's about to tell them that they need to do He precedes with this idea of they need to be ready. Goid up, gird up, pardon me, gird up your minds, be sober minded, be ready. So Peter's telling these Christians that in the midst of a world that is against them and not to mention their own sinful natures and all these trials and temptations that they're facing, that they should be a prepared to resist in this time, but also remembering their new status as children of God. At the same time, they need to be looking forward to their forever home, always remembering that there's more to life than this life. There's more waiting for those who are in Christ. So instead of obsessing over the things of this world or even becoming distraught over whatever they're facing, They should, as he said, set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought when Jesus returns, because that is their future. Yeah, I mean, the the ground for all of this is everything that he's laid out in the previous 12 verses, which were just full of the grace of God. And I mean, think through just some of those very memorable things that Peter said in those first verses, the the living hope that we've been born into, the imperishable, undivided 
undefiled, unfading inheritance that we have in heaven, that that this is being guarded for us, all of these things that God is doing for us, that is the foundation. And and the way that he starts here, this preparing your minds for action, that's a that is a fine translation, as you said. I think the image is helpful because it really it it makes what we do as Christians in things like Bible study or the divine service more than just sort of sitting there going through the motions. But this is this is a matter of, of being ready, of preparing ourselves for this battle, for this life that we live in, this, this as we talked about yesterday, this exile that we are in looking forward. How are we going to go through this life? It's a, you know, you go to when you go to church, when you read the scriptures, like this isn't just some sort of just uh, I'm just doing it because I'm I'm doing it. This is this is actually being girded for battle. It's a it's a very vivid image, and I, I think it's it's helpful that we keep that in mind as we engage in those things as Christians, so that we understand the the real seriousness of what we're doing. Well, absolutely. I mean, in the earlier verses, um, verse. Uh, six, he talks about how, you know, you're going to be grieved by various trials, but he also notes that it's just for a little while, if necessary. So um, he gives them this hope that what they're facing are real issues, but they're so temporary. Even if they were to last your entire um, life on earth, that's still only temporary in view of eternity. And so if we take that and we combine it with the gifts that God gives us, as you said, through worship, through the sacrament, and even through things like Bible study, which sometimes we can feel like, oh, gosh, you know, I don't want to be in school anymore. Or it's too much like a class or it's too much like a lecture. And I know that every pastor has his own style. But the goal, regardless of how your pastor is trying to work with you, is to equip you for both present trials and troubles of which I think they are increasing for Christians, but also to keep you focused on Jesus. And and that's that's what he's trying to say here. Remember, you're elected. He's going to talk about that a little bit later. Remember that this is temporary, which he's already said. And so being ready for action and sober minded in the sense that you're grounded in what God wants you to know, then what he's going to say next about being obedient is going to be easier to uh, easier to understand, right? Yeah, and I, the the way you explained sober minded, I think, was very helpful. One who is sober minded can can see things clearly, can mm-hmm. can distinguish things well. It goes it goes hand in hand with being girded for action, being prepared for that action, and and it is you know what is what does Peter say? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're looking forward to that day, that last day, the resurrection of all flesh when Christ returns. That's what we're looking forward to. And yet that that very futuristic thing that's going to happen that we have an eye on actually influences us today. It's really, we talked a little bit about this yesterday. It's amazing how Peter will talk about the things that Jesus has done for us in the past and the things that he's going to do for us in the future, how all of that has a real impact on our lives as Christians right now. And, and he really starts to get into that in verse 14. He, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There's the the negative side of it, I suppose. Before we even talk about don't be confer- conformed, we have that word obedient children. And and the word obedient, we were kind of talking about this before we started recording, the word obedient or obedience, obey, those words for Lutheran sometimes they trigger us a little bit. We're not sure what to do with them. How how do we understand these words from Peter as he starts talking again about obedience? Well, obedience is difficult. And I think to to act like that's not uh, a reality. Um, sometimes Lutherans want to talk about, well, our good works flow from our faith. And that's true. Um, but we don't want to say it in such a context that if you're struggling to live as Christ would have you live, um, that somehow your just faith isn't strong enough. It's not about that. What he's talking about here is that there there's a dichotomy. There's the former life that you once lived, and then now there's this new life 
not one you've had to earn, not one that you had to meet all the requirements to be uh, to be called by God for, but one that while you were still a sinner, God gave you this new life. So to be an obedient child of God is nothing other than to recognize what God has done for you. And in that faith, which from which our good works do flow, it's still hard because, well, we have to do something, um, not for our salvation, but in response to our faith. We have to resist the temptations of the world. We have to resist our sinful natures. And so there's that dichotomy that he's sort of giving them. And he, he definitely puts one in the negative. You have the passions of your former ignorance. Passions, this idea that you're not all the way in control. Or to be obedient children, to live as he has called you, set apart. So you can either move forward, loins girded as the new creation that you are, or return to your former ignorant ways. And the Christian can choose these things with the Holy Spirit in their regenerated state. They, they have the ability to walk with God with the help of the Holy Spirit or, you know, God will let people walk away. And so Peter's addressing some real issues. They, they, these are people who are, some of them, especially the Jews, are far from home. They're in context with people and, and outside their family or, or even their culture that they understand you have Gentiles who are struggling with the Jewish nature of the of the faith and all the different divisions that Paul always is addressing. And you have just, of course, them Christians being against the world. And so there's a lot of temptation for them to give up. And so he wants to encourage them. And so as obedient children, the children part really is a little bit of gospel because we have this understanding that we are made children. We don't we don't choose to be someone's child. Yeah, I, I think you're you're right. As you as you were talking there, uh, my my mind was also going to the word children and the comparison between the obedient children on the one hand and then this former ignorance on the other. One of the <laughs> when I think back on my childhood, those those moments when I thought that I knew better than my parents are usually the moments that didn't turn out too well for me. <laughs> when 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 I thought that that I could I could make it by disobeying the good things that my mom and dad had given me, right? And and Paul, or not Paul, Peter, <laughs> I've done that before and I'll probably do it again. <laughs> Peter, Peter here talks about this former ignorance. That's not the life of a, an obedient child that, you know, you think you know what you're doing apart from your heavenly father. In reality, you don't. That's a life of ignorance. That's a life of, as you said, passions, that, that thing that, you know, we just, we can't control. We just start doing and we start going that way and we're not in control. That's to be ignorant. Rather, the life that we've been given as Christians is one of children before our heavenly father, which is a matter of gospel and, and why we don't need to be afraid of that word obedient. What does it, what does it mean to be a child of God? Well, I mean, we've already talked about in the first part of this epistle, he's the one that gave us this new birth. We were born again through the resurrection of Christ. This is a gift to be a child of God. And so what does it mean to live in that relationship with God as our heavenly father? It means to receive everything from him as a gift, to recognize that he is my father who intends only good for me. I go to, I mean, all those things that are in the Lord's prayer, I'm thinking through the the catechism right now. And, and even, and I think this plays into what Peter's got here later, you know, in the commandments, uh, the explanations, we should fear, love, and trust in God. Why do we do those things? Because he's our father. And, and that's what, it, I mean, Oh, I'll, I'll let you respond to some of that. I've thrown out a lot. <laughs> well, you know, also when I think about children, you know, I think about this idea that um, people want to be, they don't want to be children. They want to be adults. They want to be in charge. And of course, as a child, that's all you want to do is be an adult, make your own decisions. And then once you're an adult, you realize, um, well, that's not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> and, and so, you know, Paul sets this up. In like Romans he talks about, you know, you don't want to be a slave either, but here are your two choices. You're a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. Later, Paul talks about us being children and you don't have a choice. You're either um, the uh, you're following the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience or you're children of light. Those are the two choices. 
So are we going to be petulant children that are following after our passions? Or are we going to be obedient children who listen to our good and gracious father? And so he says this next part about being holy, which I think is the scarier part. You know, be holy as I am holy. He's quoting, of course, Leviticus eleven forty four. Be holy as I am holy. And that's heavy law when we look into the recesses of our heart and realize that we just don't measure up, not even close to the holiness of God. So we couldn't, no matter how hard we try, be obedient enough if it weren't for God's gracious gift to us of faith, gracious gift to us of the Holy Spirit, but also, as you said, calling us into that family, making us that which we are not. So Christians are really called to be non-conformers, not conforming to the world, but just being who you are called to be. And so Peter explains that since God is holy, holy just really meaning set apart, in this case, set apart from the world, set apart from sin, set apart from those things which aren't good for us. Since God is holy, so must the works of his children be. That's why he says, for I am, I am the Lord, your God, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy for I am holy, which is straight out of Leviticus. That's the new life that God has called us to. But he doesn't just leave us alone. He doesn't just say, okay, achieve this and then I will love you. He loves us while we are still sinners through Christ. And so the good works of Christians flow because we are children of the father who course, gives us the obedience that he requires. And Jesus says something similar in Matthew 5 in the context of loving your enemies, probably one of the most difficult things that God calls us to do. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So even there, even from Jesus himself, we have a very similar saying, and it's hard but look who's reminding us of this lesson. Of course, it's the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter, but it's Peter. Peter who denied Jesus three times. Peter, the bombastic disciple. You know, Peter knew personally what it was like to lose his focus on what was important. And now he's calling us to be obedient. And um, there's something to be said about that. Yeah, I mean, I think seeing, seeing Peter in the background here and what we know of him from the Gospels is helpful. You mentioned his threefold denial, perhaps one of the more famous things that we know of Peter from the Gospels. He was he was at that moment not in verse 13. His mind had not been prepared for action. He thought he had. He, he had this, you know, the, those wonderful, you know, very bravado moments where like, I can die with you, Jesus. I'm never mm-hmm. going to deny you. He thought he was ready. He thought he had his mind set and, and sober and, and ready to see things clearly, but it was very clear on the the events of Monday, Thursday, that, that Peter was not there. And, and it, you know, I mean, and I think you see this really throughout this epistle where, where those elements of the things that happened to Peter come through in the way that he preaches. And, and I think seeing that here is, is a good, a good point that, you know, Peter, what, what brought it back to Peter? Well, it was setting his hope fully on the grace that was his at the revelation of Jesus Christ, which of course, you know, Peter's waiting for on the last day as well. But think of the way that Jesus restored Peter after his denial, or even just that night when the rooster crowed and Peter remembered what Jesus had said. And Luke even tells us that he looked at Jesus. And and there was that moment where, where Peter like, that's where my mind should have been. That's how my mind should have been girded. And it wasn't. And I think you really see that coming through here for Peter. Absolutely. He's wanting to grow up too fast instead of be an obedient yeah. child of God. And it doesn't discredit him. If, if anything else, it um, reassures us that these apostles aren't um, just holier than thou people who are, who are speaking, you know, from an Ivy tower, but these are people when he's writing to these these folks in Asia, they can they know about him, certainly, and they can say, yeah, he knows what he's talking about because he's been there and God's brought him through. And so in and probably still brings him through on occasion. And so for us, as we face these various times of doubt or even denial, that we can trust that, no, 
we can return to the Lord. And, and you know, right now we're um, just coming out of Lent and Easter uh, not too long ago. And so we, we've, we've just returned to the Lord in terms of our penitent hearts. And that's what it means to have God as our father, a loving father who's, who's willing and arms open, ready to receive us back when we, when we come back. Yeah, once again, this this epistle is such a fantastic epistle to read during the season of Easter, having come out of, of those events that the Lord accomplished for our salvation, his suffering, death, resurrection. An epistle like this, I mean, and thinking through what Peter went through in those very events and what we've experienced remembering them, hearing them yet again in worship, an epistle like this really does prepare us. It helps us to gird our minds to live as Christians in this life. And we're going to keep seeing that here in the text from 1 Peter chapter 1. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFU. I have Pastor Phil Boo with us. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, April 8th. We're studying 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. We have Pastor Phil Boo with us. He serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Pastor Boo, prior to the break, we were looking at Peter's words concerning obedient children not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And as we were talking, we, we started talking about that word holy. You know, in verse 15, Peter says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy. And then he quotes from Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. And and I want to connect the word that he uses in verse 14, that don't be conformed. I think you had talked about earlier, Paul talking about how you're going to be a slave to something. You're either going to be a slave to righteousness and to God, or you'll be a slave to your sin. And I think something similar is going on with this word conformed. You're going to be conformed to something. You're either going to be conformed to your former ignorance and those passions, or you'll be conformed to God and his holiness. And the, the reason I want to bring that out is because I think there's an, an element of, of gift and gospel that's here in these words. On the one hand, God does tell us, be holy. There is an imperative that is used there in verse 15. But he also says, and this is the way that Peter uses it when he quotes from Leviticus in verse 16, that you shall be holy. That's a declarative sentence or an indicative sentence. It's telling you who you are because of who God is. And, and and I think that's important for us to pick up on as in our lives as Christians, that my holiness as a Christian isn't based on what I do. It's first and foremost, and, and I guess I should say it's only based on who God is and the holiness that he gives to me. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, a beautiful way of looking at it, and it makes complete sense. You know, right here, smack in the middle of Peter's admonitions for them to be holy, to be obedient, to conform to God rather than the world. And then later on, he's going to be telling them that they need to conduct themselves a certain way. And I think all of that is obviously true and real. I mean, if if the way we experience life is that we feel like we're making all the decisions for everything we do. So when it comes to practicality, when you want to know how to be holy, then you do something. You you live as God calls you to live. You read the Bible. You you um, seek out forgiveness when when you need it. You you make yourself available to God's gifts in worship. Yet, right smack in the middle of it, as you point out, and and it's it's not something that you know I quickly picked up on at all until you explained it. Yeah, there's this great indicative sentence that says be holy uh, or sorry you will be you shall be holy for i am holy it's like the 10 commandments being law but while at the same time they describe 
what your life's going to be like with Christ. You're one who's going to have one God. You're going to uh, remember the Sabbath day. You're you're going to honor your father and your mother and not murder and not steal, etc. In the same way, he calls you to be holy and then he declares you holy, makes you holy, gives you the ability to live out your holy life. Just as just as in baptism, it requires faith, but then it, he gives you the faith that it requires. So this is certainly consistent with the way that what God works. Yeah, I mean, he he declares you to be holy. That that justification language, God gives you His holiness, and then it does begin to show forth in your life, which is what Peter is telling these Christians in Asia and the Christians today who are reading this epistle, what that holy life looks like, and and he's going to continue to draw that out in this text and throughout this epistle. So he he continues in verse seventeen. He picks up on this image again. He's brought up obedient children in verse 14. Now he's going to remind us who God is as our father. So if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, how does Peter's description of God as father here fit in and help to draw out what he's been saying so far? Well, I think Peter's pointing out something rather obvious here. And first of all, he's bringing to mind, I believe, the the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. And so this isn't a sentence where he's saying, if you're going to go call on your father, then um, understand blah, blah, blah. He's saying almost since you call him your father, you know, if you call him on, if you call on him as father, what you are doing is the presumption, then live as his obedient children. Because you can't have it both ways. You can't call upon God as your father if you're unwilling to then submit to him as as children would submit to their good father. Now, he, he says if you call on him as father, and then he specifically says the father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Why? I mean, when I think of the our father and the various things that I would say about, well, what is that telling me about who God is? God's impartial judgment is not what I would come to automatically, but that's what Peter emphasizes here. Why does he emphasize that particular aspect of God's fatherhood? Well, this is another one of those verses I think that makes Lutherans uncomfortable, right? What kind, yeah. what kind of father is he? Well, he's one who judges impartially. And then that judgment is according to deeds, works, you know. Uh, remember, Luther had such, um, such a reaction to good works, not because good works were bad, but because his adversaries were pushing an agenda about good works that wasn't consistent with the Bible. And they were using good works as a hammer over his head. And so we've inherited sort of this reaction to good works, which I think is really unfortunate because good works are wonderful. God does these good works through us. We do them through the power that he gives us. Even unbelievers do good things because, you know, God works through all people. But anyway, so God is one who judges impartially. He doesn't see people the way that we see them. He knows the heart. So, so impartiality in general is just, he doesn't look at somebody and make uh, judgments or preferences about them according to their status or their wealth or even their talents. Instead, God knows the true character of the person. And then despite that can see into their faith. And so God's judging us according to our deeds. Well, yeah, not for salvation. Our salvation ultimately depends on the faith that God has given us in Jesus. But as St. James tells us, faith without works is dead. So when it comes to our deeds, it's they are a reflection of the faith that God has given us. Humanly speaking, works are a good judge of character and, and even faith. We talk about empirical piety. That is, the good things that we do are a litmus test of sorts to, to see if uh, uh, we are obedient to our Father, if we are living out our lives of faith. When, when, we call, when Paul calls us to examine ourselves, that examination is of what? Our beliefs, but also are we living the way God would have us live? And so um, we see that these, that, that, Peter is pointing here to works, not the means by which we'll be declared righteous, but as a test to measure our own obedience and faithfulness to God. 
So knowing that I call upon God as my father in the Lord's prayer and that he is the one who is an impartial judge according to my deeds, then what does Peter say to do because of that? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What does it mean for the Christian to conduct himself with fear while he's living in exile? Isn't that interesting? Is, you know, is Peter telling us to be afraid of God? And, and I don't think so. Not in the most common understanding of that. Certainly not the Christian anyway. Now, believers have that new relationship with God. And oftentimes, you know, I've heard, well, Christian fear is one of awe or respect for God. And I think that's okay. It's a little simplistic, but it's okay. Um, it's not that we're afraid that God's going to come near us. But I... I believe that the, the fear invoked here, especially in the context of being a child of God, is that childlike fear of disappointing the father. You know, not a fear that he's going to come, but fear that he's going to leave. Not that that's a possibility, but, you know, in our human understanding, our fear comes because we look at God and we know that he has made so many concessions towards us and that we can't live up to that holiness that he requires. He's had to declare us holy. You shall be holy as opposed to us being able to live up to it. And so many, in so many ways, we've domesticated God. You know, we've made Jesus our buddy. We've neglected the reality that he's the creator and supreme ruler of the universe. And so I believe that here Peter is reminding us that we should continue in good works, not only out of faith, but because our God's in charge and he commands them, but also that we would want to, we would want to out of the faith and, and great things that he has done for us. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the word fear here is, is one that we are, we are quick to explain away and, and not that there isn't, you know, there is a sense of the fear being the respect, the awe for who God is, but I, I don't think that we should domesticate it, as you said, into something that there's there's not a sense of he's God, I'm not. And and, and what does that mean for for the way that I relate to him? And I do think that the way that you've explained it is the the relationship between a father and a son is a helpful one. You know, I'm the son, he's my father. That has an effect on the way that I relate to him and the the way that I live. That one of the one of the best places that that I think of when I think of what does it mean to fear God comes from from Jesus' own words, and I kind of wonder if something like this isn't going through Peter's mind when he's writing here in the first epistle. You know, uh, in John, and it's not John, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Well, that that's God, right? He's the one who can send you to hell. But then a few verses later, Jesus will say, Fear not, <laughs> because you're of more value than many sparrows. You know, God God knows the sparrows. He knows how many hairs are on your head, so don't be afraid. And so, I, like, in the space of just a few sentences, Jesus says, fear God, don't be afraid. And, and I think that the, that passage from Jesus really, at least it helps me, keep a, a good grip on these other places in the scriptures that teach us to to live in fear. What does that mean? Well, it means to recognize who God is and who I am in relation to him. And, and is there an element of maybe a, a bit of fear and trembling? At, at times there is. You know, when I've transgressed his law, there should be some fear and trembling. But there's also that recognition that he is my father who loves me as well. He's not only my impartial judge. He's also the father who loves me and has given his son for me, which which I think is where Peter's about to go. Now feel free to comment on any of that and, and then begin to take us into where Peter goes with this idea of ransoming. Well, I agree wholeheartedly. It, again, goes back to the dichotomy. You're either going to be with the sons of disobedience or the children of light. You're either going to be a slave to uh, sin or a slave to righteousness. You're either going to be a child of God or you're going to go back to your ignorant ways. So how that fear strikes us has a lot to do with our relationship with God. So if we decide that we have nothing, want to have nothing to do with God and return to our foolish ways – then that fear is going to be one of fear of his wrath and fear of him coming. And so our fear as children of him, again, it's, it's, it, it all comes from the same place, but it's experienced in a different way. No longer do we fear his punishment, but we certainly uh, fear his displeasure. And I think that Christians need to remember who they're just like you said, remember their place before God or their relationship to God. 
Um, I think that it's something that we've lost sight of and probably has a lot to do with uh, people's respect for worship services and the gifts that God gives us through those things because they've kind of made God this superhero or this buddy that can be found everywhere. And, you know, and, and that's not how God wants to be known. Now, Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then he adds more grounds for that, knowing that you were ransomed from these feudal ways. And he tells the price. It's it's so beautiful. Luther picks up on this in the explanation of the second article of the catechism. I, I just got to read it again. Ransom from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Take us into those words of Peter. Yeah, that's another part where this fear of disappointing our father comes from, right? From recognizing the great price that Jesus paid to save us from our sins. Undoubtedly, these Christians would have seen lots of value in things like silver and gold, just like we do today. And if someone were to gift them a great amount of silver, made them rich, they would have been forever indebted to them or they would have been eternally grateful. So Peter points out that their salvation wasn't purchased with such mundane things like money, which is here today and gone tomorrow, but rather with the much more precious and eternal blood of Jesus. This Jesus who was without sin, that that image of a lamb without spot or blemish, took on our punishment to save us. And it's from our faith in this fact, out of gratitude, that the Christians should not only do good works, but again, desire to do them. And so in this way, our obedience is not something we do because we're trying to repay God or trying to earn our salvation, but we're, we're seeking to serve him in love because he first loved us. Now, Peter just can't help himself, and he keeps talking about Jesus here. It's, it's just, I love the, the way that he, he just, I mean, he's been talking about, you know, be obedient to children. You are holy. You've got your father who judges partially. And then he starts talking about something that Jesus has done as the grounds for this. And he just can't help himself, but keep preaching Jesus. So he, he says of Jesus in verses 20 and 21, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, and Peter's been doing both. He's telling us about Jesus and what that means for us. Yeah, he's he's connecting a little bit back towards their election. He's now bringing back around this encouragement language because he's not just telling them to be obedient so they don't get punished or be obedient for the sake of obedience. No, th this letter of encouragement and comfort to these Christians who are suffering all these different kinds of persecutions, being obedient is about remembering who God is and what he has done for them through Christ. And so Peter takes his hearers back before the creation itself, and he points to their election again, as we always see election as a doctrine of comfort. The son of God, a, the, the, a person of the true one, true God, that, that this son was eternal and the incarnate son in Jesus in these last times, he was foreknown, though, before the foundation of the world. And why did he come for the sake of you? who through him are believers in God. That is to say that each believer can consider that the Son of God became man and lived and died and rose again for them. And if God had them in mind from eternity, then they can be confident in placing their faith and hope in him. So no matter what they're facing in life, no matter what struggles they're going through, God is steadfast he is doing everything according to his plan. Jesus is not plan B, he's plan A, and they can put their faith, hope, and trust in him. Right. I mean, that, that's just a, an astounding thing that, that God knew from before creation that this is what he was going to do in his son, Jesus Christ. And then he did it. He made it manifest now in these last times. And why? For you. I mean, that that's just a fantastic mm -hmm. thing to think that even before God created anything at all, he was already thinking of how he was going to save me and you and, and all sinners. That's a, an astounding fact. And as you said, it, it is a doctrine of great comfort to know that, that God in his grace has done this for me. Wow. And, and then in the midst of suffering and trial that we face in this life, that, I mean, God, God knew what he was doing before he created anything 
certainly he knows what he's doing now in these last times. Absolutely. Peter continues, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now we get a little more of the, the positive aspect. We've, we've heard, don't be conformed. Watch out for the passions of your former ignorance. Watch out for the, the feudal way of life that you inherited. Here, Paul, Peter, <laughs> points us toward the positive side. Your, your soul has been purified by obedience to the truth. Why? For love, love for each other. Absolutely. I think that yet again, just in our theme of stumbling blocks for Lutherans, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience. Um, it's, it's tough because it really does have this ring of, well, we got to do something to cleanse out our souls. And what is that thing that we do? We be obedient. Um, that's not the, really the, the, the force of what he's saying here. You know, obedience when we live within this life that God calls us to, it leads to casting away, resisting those evil ways that he doesn't want us to, to indulge in. And so it's in this sense that we purify our souls. It's not that our works save us, but like a, like a water filter might remove impurities from water. When we're obedient, we're simply filtering out the ways that God would not have us live. And so by that sense, that's what obedience is. And it all culminates in a sincere brotherly love. Just a couple of weeks ago on Palm Sunday, um, I did uh, confirmed rather uh, six young people. And, and what is it that we ask them in this rite? We say, will you renounce the devil and all of his works and all of his ways? So we're not saying here you are 13, 14 or however old you are. We want you to be saved. So today you need to stand up and purify your souls through your obedience. No, but we are saying purify your souls by your obedience, not for salvation, but through the power, through the gift that you're confirming today that God has already given you. Because in faith, through faith, through Jesus, they are able to cast off the works of Satan. The Holy Spirit equips them for this task. And so they're being obedient. And so what better way than to describe the obedience that a Christian life should have than to call it brotherly love? Love one another earnestly from that pure heart. What are the two tables of the law? To love God with all our hearts and minds and souls and to love our neighbor as ourself. And so Peter sums up his whole exhortation to be obedient children as to live a life of love. As you said, this positive aspect. And the other way to take this is that this Christian community is one of fraternal love, a family that's founded on the same Savior, guided by the same word, wherein we learn from each other and help each other as we walk in faith. You know, and I don't want to dwell on it too much, but just that, that word obedience, I, I don't think that obedience conveys everything that needs to be conveyed from that that Greek word. And I've, I've said this before on this program, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but I do think it's important. The word is hupakuo, which means to be under the hearing of something. And, and so to be under the hearing of a command is to do it. That is the word obedience in English. But to be under the hearing of a promise well, you can't do or obey a promise. You believe a promise. And so I, anyways, that's just a long way of saying, I think the word obedience in English doesn't capture the fullness of everything Peter wants to say here. Are there times when Christians need to obey what God commands? Of course. There are also times when Christians need to believe what God promises. And and I think that, that, that you know, the law and gospel really helps us to understand that word obedience and to make it more than just you better do what God says or else. There's there's so much. It's a richer word than that. That's my point. Well, fair enough. And and you know this culminating in love is important because he's telling them to do something that they can't do. That is to love one another from a pure heart. But then he connects that in verse twenty three to since you have been born again. So this being born again is that they accomplish these things not by their own power but through the living word of God. So even when they are doing things, even when we, if obedience were the right word, that is it's something to do, that obedience is certainly not something that 
they take credit for themselves, but rather are equipped by because of being in this status, as, as you said. And so he even connects it to the living word of the living and abiding word of God through which they have been born again. Just like Jesus rebuked Satan in the wilderness that man does not live by bread alone, Peter points these Christians to where sustenance and nourishment for their faith and their Christian lives and their sanctification can be found in God's word. And it alone gives them faith and strength to help them meet the challenges ahead. And so the word guides them to what it looks like to have this life as as children of God. Peter then closes this section with a quotation from Isaiah 40. We've got about two and a half minutes here, Pastor Boo. Help us with that Isaiah quotation. How does Peter make use of it and and use that to wrap things up for us today? Right. I love that. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. He, he, He ties up this whole section in a little bow. And this is, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So we have gospel and word. It's a, it's a very Lutheran way to end it. Don't we love it? He's quoting from Isaiah 40 to illustrate that everything that these folks, these Christians, and of course, through time and space, us too, everything that they may face in this life is passing away. But the word, both of course, Jesus Christ, but also even the, the message about Christ that we have through, through the prophets and the apostles, the word remains forever. And so for us Christians, even 2,000 so years later, almost 2,000 years later, the word still possesses the same power it did for these Christians. It is eternal. We too have heard the good news of Christ's saving work. For us too, the Holy Spirit has given us faith. And we are also equipped through God's gifts to be uh, under the authority of God, to be his children, meeting the days ahead by living lives of love for our God and our neighbor. Pastor Phil Boo is the pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota, helping us today with 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. Pastor Boo, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure, and I'm always happy to do it. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about 1 Peter or 2 Peter and Jude, which we will get to later in this series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.